When I was uh, a little kid, I had five siblings and we wanted some hamsters. So my mom went out and bought us a couple of hamsters. Now we weren't like hamsterologists or anything, so we didn't really know what we were doing. But we soon discovered that, that hamsters like to multiply. And so our two little hamsters started to multiply. And the crazy thing about hamsters is they can multiply four weeks. They can get pregnant four weeks after they're born. And they can have a litter of little hamsters every four weeks after that. So we ended up with, with a lot of hamsters for a little while. One of them by the name of Fonzie escaped into the heat ducts, never to be seen again. But if you look at hamsters, they're, they're cute little creatures. They fill their cheeks with seeds and, and pellets. But at the same time, admittedly, they're kind of useless little guys. They're content to get on their little hamster wheels and just pointlessly and mindlessly run and run and run and run. And they're going nowhere. So you know that because of that reality, that the idea of a hamster on a wheel has kind of become a metaphor for life, right? that there's a lot of people who are engaged in actions and efforts, but they're really going nowhere fast. This is the nature actually of false religion, of a false gospel that says, get on the wheel and here's the things we want you to do. And so we get on the wheel and we start to run to appease or please the gods or God or whoever it is that we perceive we should be worshiping. And we do everything that we're told, but really we're not accomplishing anything. There's nothing meritorious about a works-oriented religion. In fact, a works-oriented religion often leads to things like fear increasing in a person's life because you're, you're trying to please, you're trying to appease, you're trying to make it to heaven, you're trying to be right with God, but in your heart of hearts, you know that you're still a sinner. And, and you know that you have failed more times than you have succeeded. Lots of effort, but really zero progress. Spiritually, this is all too often the case. False religion invites us all to put in a lot of effort, but at the end of the day, we're really accomplishing nothing. Your sin weighs you down, and until you receive the transformative grace which is a key word I want to emphasize today. The transformative grace of God. When I, when I say of God, I mean sourced in God, from God, gifted by God. Trying to do good works, trying to be religious enough, trying to perform for God actually causes you to remain caged. You're performing for your supposed masters, but really you're going nowhere. Now this is a problem that many spiritually lost people have not yet understood. But it's also, and this is sadder still, it can be a problem in the Christian church. Many Christians put their faith in Christ. They believe that God is gracious and loving and merciful. They've repented of their sins and they've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. But then a little bit of time goes by and someone whispers a lie in their ears says, you know, maybe you need to do something to really make sure that you're okay with God. Maybe you need to start performing. Maybe God isn't pleased with you anymore. Maybe grace isn't enough. And 
sadly, many Christians get back on the hamster wheel of seeking salvation and seeking the favor of God through meritorious efforts, falling back into a a merit-based, point-based, brownie points-based, gold star-based salvation. And in doing so, they actually gut the gospel of the grace that is central to the message of Jesus Christ. Well, I say all this because as was the case in the first century church, every generation needs to be reminded of the gospel of freedom, which was secured for us through Jesus. The, The gospel message that points us to a radical folks, a radical undeserved grace sourced in God that forbids us from seeking to attain our salvation through merits or taking credit for our standing with God. Our salvation is all sourced and rooted in God's amazing grace. An amazing grace that saved a room full of wretches like us. We've been studying the book of Galatians as a church family. And Galatia was not one church. It was a region. It was a Roman province. And in that province, there were many different churches that had been planted and for a period of time were flourishing. But some false teachers showed up in the region and they started wandering around and preaching falsehood. And the apostle Paul, who was instrumental in the planting and spiritual oversight of these churches, felt it was necessary to write to them what we call the epistle to the Galatians so that they could be reminded of God's gospel that had set them free from this notion that you can earn your way into the presence of God. These false teachers had come, and many of them had been influenced by Jewish theology. And what they did, essentially, in brief, is they would start to whisper into the ears of the Christians in these churches, grace isn't enough, God's efforts aren't enough, you need to go back and start participating in some of the Jewish rituals that marked the Old Covenant. And unless you do that, your salvation is not secure. Well, Paul blew his theological stack. And Paul came to crush this lie. This is how strong Paul was in his language. If you remember when we studied the first 10 verses of Galatians chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8, He said, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one we delivered to you, let him be anathema, which means eternally damned. Pretty strong language. Let him be eternally accursed. You mess with the gospel of grace and be prepared for God's titanic judgment to descend upon you. So this wasn't one of those minor points of disagreement that he wanted to bring a little correction to when he had time. This was central, this was a a central attack upon the gospel, and Paul wanted to correct that. So we've entitled this series, Getting the Gospel Right, and we find ourselves this morning in Galatians chapter 2, which kind of continues this theme forward, helping us to be reminded that personal merit or religious rituals are not core to the gospel. So join me as we study Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. And as we enter into this text, the first kind of main point of truth that we're going to discover is that Paul provides us with proof 
that salvation really is by grace. Salvation really is by grace. So what he's doing here, just to set the, the stage, he, is, he describes to the Galatian church a visit that he made to a group of apostles, James, Peter, and the like, who primarily were tasked with ministering in and around Jerusalem and Israel. So there were some apostles that tended to focus their energies on preaching the gospel to the Jews. And as you probably know, Paul's task was primarily to preach the gospel to the outlying regions, the Gentiles. So they sort of had two different assignments. They were in two different ministry spheres. And Paul goes and visits the apostles that were ministering in Jerusalem. And he just, he, he makes a visit there to clarify, so they're all in agreement, and they, they turned out to all be in agreement, that salvation is not dependent upon returning to Old Testament ritual. Okay, so that's the context. So with that in mind, let's start off in the first three verses. So here's what he says. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, a colleague, taking Titus along with me. There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. The names of these individuals are significant. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. What's going on here? Well, either 14 years after Paul's conversion or 14 years after his first visit, there's, we're not entirely sure about the time reference, but it's one or the other. The now veteran apostle visits his Jerusalem colleagues and they have some private conversations. They have some discussions. Now, it is noteworthy that Paul, who was converted on the road to Damascus, has taken some time to successfully develop a couple other competent men to aid him, Barnabas and Titus. And by the way, just as a little sidebar, that's what leaders do. They multiply their efforts. They train other people. They entrust other men to preach the gospel. They expand their ministry. It's a wise thing. If you're a leader, especially a high-end leader, make sure you're multiplying your efforts because one day we all will be gone to heaven and we need people to remain and replace our ministry. Now, it is also notable that when Paul went to Jerusalem, he didn't go because someone emailed him and said, hey, we're having a meeting. You want to come? He went there by what he calls a revelation. In other words, God spoke to him directly as an apostle. We talked about the importance of apostles receiving direct revelation from God last week. And so God really wanted this meeting to happen. God was guiding and directing the circumstances. So we can assume that if these men were submissive to God, that the outcome would be of God and in accordance with God's will. Paul goes and he engages in private discussions about the gospel with influential men. Paul was one of those guys that we should appreciate because he, didn't avoid, he did not avoid hard discussions about all things biblical and theological. If a matter needed to be discussed of doctrinal significance, 
He didn't avoid it in order to try to keep the peace. Whenever you have a conversation with someone about theological matters, there's a potential for division, for bad blood, for misunderstanding, for dispute. But Paul had those conversations. He wasn't afraid to do that. He understood that long-term unity among believers depends on robust biblical discussion and debate. He had a proper view of Christian doctrine, and he wanted to make sure that his colleagues were lined up with him. So this event then is described now back to the Galatians. So Paul went, he had this experience, and then in Galatians, he's describing it back to the Galatians. Why is he telling them about this meeting that he had? Like, what's the point of that? Why is it necessary for them to know about Paul's itinerary? Well, he makes this interesting comment, this telling comment in verse three. It almost seems kind of like a little bit personal. Like, why would we... Why are we talking about a person's circumcision? Like, that's kind of a personal thing. It's not the kind of thing you come into church, hey, are you circumcised? You know? It's, it's kind of a private, intimate sort of thing. But there's something about circumcision that is actually critical to our understanding of Paul's message. He affirms that Titus, who was a Greek, he was actually half Jewish, half Greek, but he was a Greek, was not circumcised, and that the Jerusalem leaders, the Jewish apostles who were ministering to the Jews, affirmed that Titus was a legitimate, bona fide Christian without ever having been circumcised. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Circumcision. I bet you weren't expecting that when you came to church today. But we're going to talk about circumcision for a bit because it is a ritual that's, that's kind of important. So under the old covenant, <clears throat> God required that all Jewish boys, as a sign and a seal of participating in what we call the Abrahamic covenant, would experience circumcision. Why? Why not a funky haircut? Why not a certain hat? Why not wear a certain color of sandals? Like why, why would God mandate to the Jews that they had to circumcise their sons? After all, it's a bloody affair. It can be a painful affair. On one of the most intimate parts of the body. Well, that part of the body is part of our reproductive systems. And it is that part that produces the seed from which children are birthed. Now, if you rewind in your biblical mind backwards in Scripture, you remember that when Abraham was selected by God and justified by faith in the eyes of God, God said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to multiply your descendants so they're virtually uncountable. That's what we call the seed promise. In New Testament terms, we tend to think about heaven and the future and spiritual blessings. But under the old covenant, there was a, there was a strong emphasis on offspring. And Abraham, this was kind of a, a bit of a shocking promise to Abraham because him and his wife were starting to move into their retirement years. They were quite old by standards of the time to start having children. But God promised that this would be his, one of the primary marks of his blessing and his grace poured out 
that he would multiply Abraham's descendants. Now, for three or four generations, that promise was always called into question because him, his son, his grandson, there was always a little fertility issue going on when you know, they were trying to have kids. And this is deliberate. They trusted him, the Lord. God made a promise, and in spite of the human challenges of the moment, he ultimately fulfilled that promise. And so the Jewish people indeed became a great nation. Now, this is important because when a male was born and therefore brought in under that covenant, it was the male organ that produced the seed that would be marked in a special and unique way to demonstrate that he was in fact part of this covenant that was given to God, by God, to Abraham. Now later, this seed promise would become what the New Testament writers call a circumcision of the heart, because that's really what it's all about. It's not about, well, you got your physical mark, you're obviously expanding and multiplying, so you're okay with God. To enter into relationship with God and be in a covenantal relationship, God requires obedience. What God was really looking for is not circumcised men. What he was looking for is worshipers that from the core of their being outward, symbolized by the heart, loved him and worshiped him and served him and obeyed him. So the New Testament writers talk much of circumcision of the heart rather than circumcision, a circ physical circumcision performed by man the circumcision of the heart that the Bible speaks of in the New Testament is performed by God. You can study Romans chapter 2 for an extensive discussion about this, but I'll just quote one verse from Romans 2. This is verse 29 where it says, but a Jew, meaning a real Jew, a worshiper of God, is one inwardly. The circumcision and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So this is our, our background. Circumcision was a sign, symbol, and seal of being part, a participant in the Abrahamic blessing, but it was never intended to be the means, listen to me carefully, to be the means of receiving grace or attaining grace or retaining grace or somehow getting God's favor in your life. No. And nor was any other ritual or aspect of old covenant living. Now here's something that's really fascinating. Paul is basically arguing that if anybody comes to you and says, look, you want to be a real Christian? You need to get circumcised. You need to be a real Christian. You need to follow these dietary laws. You need to be a real Christian. You need to do this or do that. He's like, no, I resist that. I resist that. He's pointing them back toward grace and away from ritual or merit or effort to attain salvation. But at the same time, Paul was sufficiently pragmatic. Paul was sufficiently strategic. Paul understood that some of the decisions we make push people away or draw people in. So with Titus, he said, Titus wasn't circumcised, Titus didn't need to be circumcised in order to be considered a covenantal believer. But then if you go to Acts chapter 16, verse 3, we meet his other younger colleague, Timothy. And look what it says about Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him 
Paul was going to go into Jewish territory. He wanted to do some preaching. He, he wanted to make sure there were no barriers, no hindrances, no blockages to being received and accepted and listened to. So listen to, listen to Timothy's response. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany me, and he took him. That's Timothy. This is an adult man, by the way and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. Why? For they all knew that his father was a Greek. So with Titus, it's like, no, we're not going to circumcise you because we don't want people to think that circumcision is necessary for salvation. But for Timothy, Timothy willingly submitted himself to be circumcised as a man because he did not want his lack of circumcision to be any sort of an impediment to the ministry of the gospel. Now, we could tell some jokes at this point, which we'll try not to do, even though I'm tempted. But I do want you to think about this idea of sacrifice for ministry. Sacrifice for ministry. The idea that, okay, um, you're committed to Christ, right? Timothy, yep. You want to be a preacher of the gospel, yep. What would you be prepared to do in order to make inroads into the Jewish community? Um, what do I need to do? Pay some money, go to a training course. How about we circumcise you as an adult male? That's sacrifice, folks. That's painful. This, isn't, this is not in a day and age where they have anesthetic in a nice, clean little hospital. But Timothy was so committed to the proclamation of the gospel that in a context that required it and made it more likely that people would listen, he was prepared to have a body part cut off in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we compare these accounts, we need to understand that there is a big difference between voluntarily submitting yourself to a ritual, a custom, a particular behavior, or abstaining from a particular behavior in order to open up ministry opportunities. There's a big difference between that and subjecting oneself to a ritual in order to try to attain a standing with God. So we understand that in life, sometimes we have to be flexible. Sometimes we have to sacrifice. Sometimes we have to modify our behavior. If we really want to reach an audience for Christ, we have to modify our behavior. But in the process of doing so, we have to be really, really conscientious not to cross the line and communicate to people, well, actually, you've got to now do the same thing that I did if you're going to be a bona fide Christian. One of the most famous missionaries of relatively recent history is Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor lived from 1832 to 1905, just to kind of give you the context. He was an English missionary who went to China. And when he went to China, he had his, his big beard and he had his his long black English coat on, and he learned Mandarin, and he, he started preaching, and he wasn't very successful. Then he discovered, as he would interact with the Chinese, that he had a nickname. They called him the Black Devil. Why? Because of this long black, kind of weird by Chinese standards, coat that he would wear. It just It looked, in their mind, that look kind of devilish. This guy's preaching the gospel, but he kind of looks like a demon or something. And when he realized that, which in England would be interpreted very differently, it would mean that you're, you know, a man of poise and uh, well-dressed and modest and whatnot. He decided, okay, we got to change this. So he 
this is going back you know, well over 100 years. Missionaries have understood this now for a long time, but back then this was radical. He decided, he's one of the first missionaries to do this, that he was going to dress like the Chinese. So he started wearing Chinese clothing. He actually dyed his hair black. He shaved off the front of his head to wear one of the caps that they wore at the time. And he actually grew a pigtail. Why? In order to build evangelistic bridges. In order to build evangelistic bridges, he adapted. Now, in doing so, he wasn't saying, if you want to be a true Christian in China, you have to dress like this now. No. But he adapted to his circumstances in order to open up evangelistic doors. So we're not anti-strategy. We're just anti-meritorious works. We're opposed to the idea that works or efforts or rituals are a means of attaining grace. Rather, grace is our hope. And it's that the beauty of that grace that frees us from performance anxiety, trying to earn our way into the presence of God. If you're fearful, you're a Christian, but you're like, I'm still fearful. I'm still not quite sure that God has accepted me. I'm still, I'm still not quite sure that God has forgiven me. I mean, sometimes I feel like, I'm a Christian, some days I feel like I'm not. Think about grace. Remind yourself of God's grace. Ask yourself, what am I actually trusting in? My efforts or God's amazing, transformative, encouraging grace? Now, folks, because this is true, it is therefore our responsibility to thwart any attempts to distort the gospel. We have to thwart them. Verse 4, yet because of false teachers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have from Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, back on the hamster wheel, back trying to perform, back trying to please and appease God with our efforts. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Notice the resolve, the resolution that Paul had. He didn't need to take time to pray about this, to meditate upon it for a week. He understood the gospel so clearly that he saw falsehood immediately. Not even for a moment did we yield so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It only takes a generation to lose it. It's our job to preserve it. It's our job to thwart any attacks. Every generation in the church will be threatened with compromise, folks. Every generation. Heresies that just kind of resurface. And it's our job to preserve the gospel for the next generation. But you're going to hear a lot of temptation. You're going to hear a lot of falsehood. Hey, hey guys, tone it down a little bit when it comes to this whole exclusivity of Jesus thing. Don't you know we're in a pluralistic culture? Like, you can have your Jesus, but Jesus alone, come on. Tone it down. You're going to hear that. Penal substitutionary atonement. Christ died and paid the penalty for your sin, and his atoning sacrifice is enough. That's just one theory of many. You can have alternative views. Maybe Christ is just a great moral figure. You're going to hear that. Or keep Christ in the church. Don't herald him in public. This is the heresy of the day. Oh, we believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ in the church. But let's not start talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ over the academy or culture. No, no, we're not into that. Well, Paul labels 
the folks that were whispering lies in the ears of the Galatian church, false brothers who had slipped in to diminish the exclusivity of Christ's meritorious work and instead were teaching adherence to an expired ritual for salvation. Circumcision isn't bad, it's not forbidden, but it's not relevant to your salvation. So when you submit to these extra-biblical efforts, what you actually do is you become, you become captive once again. When you submit to one, you think, okay, well, I'll do this in order to gain standing with God. But what you're actually doing is you're becoming a captive to potentially endless mandates to measure up to God's standards. And when that happens, again, fear erupts Fear erupts because you know, in your heart of hearts, we all know our imperfections. We all know it. If we're honest, we all know. We know we can't attain them. I can barely attain on a good day 50% of the things that I believe in. I can preach them on a Sunday and fail Sunday afternoon. Doesn't mean I don't believe them to be true, but I need God's work in order to even progress in my sanctification, my growth and holiness. It's really important for us to think through these issues. By the way, what's a false brother? There's a guy online this week. I actually found it kind of funny because he was kind of goofy in all honesty. But he, um, I had commented on someone's post that was uh, advocating for capital punishment, which I believe in. I, I believe capital punishment is biblical. I'm probably going to do a podcast on it this week. But he had a difference of opinion, and he actually called me a heretic. Okay, well, you're not a heretic because you disagree with people on capital punishment or the nature of baptism or church membership. A heretic is someone that has, that has denied core doctrine. A heretic is someone that denies creedal Christianity, the Trinity. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you're a heretic. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ went to a real Roman cross and was crucified and raised three days later, you're a heretic. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is coming back, you're a heretic. You're not a heretic because you have a dispute with someone over a lesser issue. But these guys were heretics that Paul is addressing because they were twisting the gospel. And again, you should be so clear in your mind on the gospel of grace that as soon as you see or hear or smell any sort of merit trying to sneak into the gospel message as a means of being saved, you should respond as Paul did. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, he says in verse 5. Not even for a moment. Well, Christ is our Lord. The gospel teaches us that. We by nature are sinners until we're saved. There is a Savior that was lovingly substituted for you. And salvation, folks, is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Make sure you add the word alone. It's really important. That's the gospel message in summary. And we're so grateful for that. And when we understand that, it actually increases our worship because when you're in worship, it's all that vertical focus that Pastor Chris mentioned. It's thanking the Lord and praising the Lord for his incredible grace in our lives. And each generation, chapter two, verse five, is called to preserve it for the next. So if you're a parent, make sure you're preserving it for your kids. If you're a youth worker, a preacher, a teacher, a grandparent, make sure you're preserving it. Bring clarity to this message. 
with the young people that you speak to. Now, lest we think otherwise, there is one gospel for all cultures. So we just kind of want to take this idea that's sort of been alluded to and bring it to life a little bit more. There's one gospel for all cultures. So this isn't a message just for the Canadian church or the North American church or the Western church. There is one gospel through all of time for all cultures. So the final cluster of verses here reads as follows. And from those who seem to be influential, that is the apostles he was speaking to, and then he makes this little sidebar. So this gets a little uh, convoluted, especially when you're just hearing it read to you. So kind of follow along on the screen, it'll help. He says, and from those who seem to be influential, sidebar, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. So he wants to make sure that as he talks about how influential they were, that he wasn't somehow categorizing people in different statuses before God. Whether you're prominent in ministry or a behind-the-scenes guy, you're still equally valuable to the Lord, okay? So it's not about your, your, your prominence that matters. Those, I say, who seemed influential <clears throat> added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, the Jews. So he was a Jerusalem apostle. Paul was in outlying areas. And then another little sidebar. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. So Paul is like, <clears throat> Peter's doing this, I'm doing that. Neither of us is more significant, but it's the same God that empowered and equipped and appointed both of us. Okay, so he's not puffing himself up. He's not puffing them up. And when James and Cephas, another word for Peter, and John, three of the prominent apostles in Jerusalem, who seemed to be pillars, who were influential, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul's like, hey, when I went there, there were kind of some guys that seemed a little put off by me. They were influential, but they didn't really pay that much attention to me. And I don't really care about their influence, but the reality is influential men sort of blew me off. But then he goes on to say, but the core apostles, they gave me the right hand of fellowship, which is a way of saying, hey, I affirm, I affirm what you're doing. Go get them, Paul. And likewise, Paul was affirming them. Now, so there's affirmation. There's, there's this group and there's this group. And they're affirming each other's ministry, but they're in different cultural contexts. One group's reaching the uncircumcised Gentiles. One group's reaching the circumcised Jews. We learn from this passage that God, while God cares little about your status, some people will be influential in the Christian church. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not opposed to leadership. We're not opposed to recognizing that God will give a more expansive ministry to some and a less expansive ministry to others. Don't let that go to your head. Don't, don't, don't allow yourself to think that if you're in that role that somehow you're better than or if you're not in that role that you're kind of a spiritual loser. No, we're all equal in our standing before God but throughout history, some people will be known in a broader way than others. There's nothing wrong with that. 
That influence, however, can be used for good or for bad. So the greater the influence, the greater the problems you will create for others if you wield that influence inappropriately. So with responsibility, with, with, with authority, I should say, comes responsibility to make sure you're wielding your stewardship properly. But unfortunately, some of these influential men were suspicious and less than welcoming for Paul because, you know, for good reason, from a human perspective, it's like, we don't know this guy. He ministers in a far-off land. He has a checkered resume. He used to kill Christians. You guys all know that? He used to kill Christians. And he's kind of outside of their circles. But the more godly men among them, Peter, James, John, affirmed his apostolic leadership And then, to further emphasize they're ministering in very different contexts, they asked Paul, look at verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So what that kind of indicates is that Paul was ministering to Gentiles in more affluent areas. Apparently, around the Mediterranean where Paul was ministering to, there was more money, more trade. The subjugated Jews, still under Roman control, struggled with poverty, especially the Christians. They were probably ostracized. They probably lost their jobs because of their convictions. Sound familiar to anyone? They lost their jobs. They were ostracized because of their convictions. So the apostles acknowledge, you got a ministry, we have a ministry to the Jews, to the Gentiles. And also, evidently, Paul was ministering to a wealthier class of people. And Peter, James, and John to a more poverty-stricken class. So they're like, hey, Paul, as you go off in your ministry, if you could collect money and send it back, that would be super helpful for our ministry here. And we know at different points in the uh, pistolary literature of Scripture, Paul did that. He was collecting offerings in order to take it back to Jerusalem. So why do I emphasize all of that? Well, the Bible talks about it. And it's emphasizing here that while circumstances differ between one person's ministry and the next, you're going to minister to different audiences, different economic groups. Ultimately, the gospel was the same for the Jew and the Gentile, for the circumcised and the uncircumcised, for the rich and the poor. There's no gospel for rich people and gospel for poor people. Gospel for men, gospel for women. All cultures, all people, regardless of their circumstances, must come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, surrender themselves to his benevolent rule, and their lives will be eternally and graciously transformed. That's a wonderful thing. So we needn't wonder if God is going to work through faithful gospel declaration because maybe we're ministering to a harder culture. Yeah, there's some cultures that are a little more difficult. Try planting a church in Saudi Arabia, right? As opposed to maybe Tennessee. Very different culture, but the gospel message is the same and God can do an amazing work as we faithfully proclaim it uh, to, to all people that there is one way to God through salvation, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. So as, as we wrap up, And as you you prepare to kind of go back out into the world and perhaps meet some false teachers and be confronted with fears, keep it in mind. First of all, keep it in mind. Make sure that in your mind you have clarity as to what the gospel is. Secondly, allow it to continue to humble you and bless you. This isn't just, hey, this is what you need to think. This is supposed to humble you and bless you 
and catapult you into worship and service and gratitude. Know that you've been freed in Christ if you're a believer. Do not make the mistake of returning to the hamster wheel, trying to perform your way into God's good graces. Know that you've been freed by Christ. Return daily to the cross of Jesus Christ and worship him for his amazing gift of grace provided for us, secured for us, and made available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. So be blessed by these words, church. And let's pray to that end.